may be seated. Thank you, Susan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. Welcome to those online once again. Welcome to those here with us. Glad you're here. I was doing some reflecting this week because this past Tuesday was the two-year anniversary of that first sheltered-in-place live-streamed service just after the world turned upside down. I feel like we've all aged about 10 years in those last two, or at least that's what my rapidly graying hair tells me around this area. If you've only found this church since then, as many of you have, we hope it's your experience that North Sub is emerging from the divisiveness of the last two years as a church that displays the unity that's found only in Christ. <clears throat> I mean, when you think about it, there are about a thousand reasons why this right here shouldn't work. We're different ages, different ethnicities. We dress differently. We vote differently. We have different patterns of romantic attraction. We make different schooling choices. We responded to COVID differently. We prefer different worship styles. Any one of those should be a deal breaker for this being able to happen on a Sunday morning. You can't hold together a community that diverse today. So some of the church consultant gurus say, don't try. Don't try to hold it together, right? They say, just find your niche and then build around that uniform homogenous group. But at North Sub, <clears throat> here's the question we keep coming back to. How does homogeneity require the power of God's spirit? If we only go to church who are with people who are just like us, how are we achieving anything our neighbors couldn't achieve at the Elks Lodge or at a spin class or on the golf course? So we're committed to this being one of those increasingly rare spaces in which very different people do the messy work of subordinating our own preferences to give the benefit of the doubt to community members who are different from us. Put it differently, we're not just aiming to tolerate or to accept people who differ from us. We're actually looking to practice concrete acts of charitable kindness to those who are different from us. Why? Because we know that we are stronger for having a variety of gifts and perspectives contributing to our one mission, which is to connect with people at the well, to disciple them in the word, and to send them out as empowered disciples to transform the world. All that to say, after two years now of doing church together in a world that's at each other's throats, I'm thanking God for all of you this week and for the unity that his spirit effects among us on the basis of the blood of Christ shed for all. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer as we look at the word. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. It's, it's so risky to use political anecdotes to illustrate anything these days, so let me say at the outset that I'm not endorsing either of the figures I'm about to name. I'm not implying that one of them is or was better than the other. This is not intended to be a commentary on either of the parties associated with these individuals. I'd tell the story just the same if the roles were reversed, just a story that happens to be true and to illustrate the point well. 
So during the 2012 presidential debates, the candidates were asked, what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America? Most, including President Obama, answered as expected, Al-Qaeda. But Mitt Romney responded differently. Russia is, without question, our number one geopolitical foe, he said. They fight every cause for the world's worst actors. <coughs> there was almost audible laughter from those present. And President Obama replied along the lines of what many people were thinking at the time. He said, the 1980s are calling to ask for their foreign policy back because the Cold War has been over for over 20 years. That moment was used to paint Mr. Romney as hopelessly out of touch and may have played a role in his failure to get elected. Fast forward a decade, now that Russia has attempted to tamper with our elections, has brought the world to the brink of World War III by its invasion of Ukraine, you have everyone from CNN to The Atlantic to Democratic legislators admitting, hey, in hindsight, Mitt Romney was right a decade ago. Again, set aside the parties and the politics for a moment. Not the point at all. Just think about Mr. Romney's 2012 experience. You are publicly made a laughingstock for expressing a p an opinion that you know is right. Think about how in his shoes you might long to be publicly vindicated. How you might yearn to hear the world say those three words, he was right. Now, take that little hardship faced by Mitt Romney, scale it up from American politics to issues of cosmic importance, and you've got the situation faced by late first century Christians in the city of Philadelphia. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, if you haven't already? Revelation 3, we'll be picking up in verse 7. You'll want to follow along with us. This is the sixth of the seven letters included in the early chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which was written around 90 AD or so to these churches in Asia Minor. The Christians in Philadelphia, which is not cheesesteak Philadelphia, by the way, but uh, this Philadelphia right here in modern-day Turkey, they had been identified by their fellow Philadelphians as public enemy number one for their alarming beliefs, for their strange practices, monogamy, worship of this man Jesus as if he was a deity, refusal to give even token worship to the Roman gods. These Christian distinctives weren't just weird. They were seen as a threat to the flourishing of the city and the empire. And so it didn't matter that these Christians knew that they were in the right. The residents of their city, especially the Jewish residents of this particular city, saw them as wrong. And not only as wrong, but as dangerously wrong. So at the time the Apostle John sends this letter to the Church of Philadelphia, the church has already suffered significantly for their commitment to Christ. As, as far as they could see, there was no end in sight to the persecution. Like Mr. Romney in 2012, the Philadelphian Christians had been written off as backwards, out of touch, hopelessly ignorant. And because of their refusal to cave under state pressure to participate in emperor worship, their very lives were at risk for their commitment to Christ. As we explore this letter in depth this morning, we'll do so not, not as a detached historical analysis, but rather as an act of hopeful expectation. And we can expect that God will do something among us through the scripture text, even this morning, because God himself tells us, doesn't he, that his spirit makes these words words of life. In some sense, they're written to us 
living and active, able to penetrate to the very innermost parts of who we are as individuals and as a community here in the year 2022. So may the Lord use these words as a mirror to give us a, a, a you are here moment as we've been looking for in this series, to show us where we stand before him today. Just as with all these letters, uh, it's critical, critically important in this particular letter, uh, the identity of the writer and the identity of the reader makes all the difference. So this passage happens to work itself out like this. Who's writing, who's reading, what the writer will do and what the readers must do. Who's writing, who's reading, what the writer will do and what the reader must do. First, who's writing. I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record week after week, but a little review for those joining us for the first time in this series. All seven of these letters are words given by God to the risen Jesus who delivers them through angels to uh, John, the apostle, who writes them down and sends them off to these seven churches. Yet, the same risen Jesus introduces himself differently to each church, highlighting a particular facet of his character that this particular church particularly needs to hear. So how does the risen Jesus introduce himself to the church of Philadelphia? Here it is. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. He's the Holy One, meaning set apart. He's the, the True One, meaning he's the one in whom there is nothing false. And those are words we might quickly skim over until we realize that a few chapters later in this same book, when the martyrs cry out to God, guess how they address God himself? Chapter 6, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true. How long will you judge those who live on the earth? How long until you judge those who are on earth and avenge our blood? The risen Jesus, in other words, who's writing to this church, is claiming to be God himself. That's not all. He has the key of David, which probably means almost nothing to most of us on first reading. But whenever there's a phrase like this in John's revelation, that doesn't immediately make much sense to us. The first place we should go to find the meaning is where? The Old Testament, right? Exactly. Specifically, often, the book of Isaiah, which John alludes to or directly quotes in almost every paragraph in Revelation. So this key of David is a perfect example of that. What's the key of David? Take a look here at Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 to 22, written maybe seven centuries or so before John's revelation. It says, on that day I will call for my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. So yes, this is written in the first instance about a guy named Eliakim. But then Jesus comes along in Revelation chapter 3 and effectively says, hey, Isaiah 22 was always about me. Eliakim died. He gave up his key to the household of David. But I, I'm the true and better Eliakim, the one who has that key for all of eternity. If that's the case, and I'm sure we all want to know, well, what's the key about? And what's all this opening and closing? Well, in Isaiah... And in Revelation, the key to a household represents 
the power to admit by opening the door or to exclude by closing the door. You can unlock the door and let someone in. You can lock the door and keep someone else out. The one who holds the key, in other words, is fully authorized to rule the house in an administrative gatekeeper capacity. And Jesus says, that's me. Just like Eliakim was a prime minister to Israel's kings and was given the keys to include or exclude from David's household, that's the role I play in God's heavenly kingdom. I have the power, Jesus says, to admit people for salvation. I have the power to declare who's subjected to judgment. I'm the one who holds the keys, and I never get overruled. Pretty powerful. Now imagine this, though. Think about, think about how you would receive these words if you were living in Philadelphia, right around 90 A.D., and weekend after weekend, you headed over to the synagogue in town to join others in the worship of the one true God, only to be locked out because of your belief in Jesus as Messiah. That's what these Christians were apparently facing. But Jesus is like, hey, <clears throat> you may be locked out of your local synagogue. But when it comes to the heavenly synagogue, the only synagogue gathering place that ultimately matters, I hold the keys. I decide whom to open the door for, and I decide who gets locked out. It's an encouraging, refreshing message to one who has experienced exclusion. And, and I wonder if, I wonder if just that verse 7 has reminded someone here of that friend group that you were locked out of, so to speak, because of your faith in Christ. The group chat that you were excluded from, the party you weren't invited to, the promotion you didn't get. I don't know when that door was shut in your face. Or maybe if that's just a potential scenario that you sometimes fear at this point. Either way, hear this. When it comes to the house that matters, Jesus holds the keys. So that's who's writing. And now we ask to Jesus, what stands out about the church to whom he's sending this letter? From his vantage point, what stands out about this church? Who's reading? Take a look at verse 8. Once again with me. I know your works, Jesus says. Look, I, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. When I read this, I think of Steve Rogers from the Marvel comics and movies. Just a little guy, weak, kind of sickly. Yet, you know the story, right? Despite getting beat up and mocked relentlessly, Never surrenders his convictions. He's so unwaveringly devoted to defending freedom and ensuring justice that when the scientists on the project are looking for someone to inject with serum and turn into a super soldier, Steve Rogers is the one they call on to become Captain America. I said powerfully, Mike. Uh... If one of these churches, the seven churches in Revelation, is the Steve Rogers of the group, it's Philadelphia. They've been beaten up. They're probably a small church, as indicated by the you have but little power here. But unlike some of the more outwardly impressive churches we've already seen in Asia Minor, they've kept Christ's word. Side note, you may have caught that only two churches of the seven, this one and Smyrna, we saw a few weeks ago, don't get any kind of correction or rebuke from Jesus, only praise. And it's worth noting that these two happen to be the smallest, the least notable of the seven. I think that's worth at least filing away for the future. Because 
if the Lord grants us growth here at North Sub, as we hope he does, there will be a whole new set of challenges that we face as a community. Not least of which is that a big, impressive church will have to battle constantly against trusting its own strategies and abilities rather than relying on the Lord's strength. Back to Philadelphia, though. They are commended for their works. They have little power, yet they've kept Jesus' word and have not denied his name. And remember what we noted the last few weeks about the two main pressures to deny Jesus' name in this part of the Roman Empire? Remember that in, in order to get your business licensed, you had to join the guild in town, the Carpenters Guild or Metal Workers Guild. But the guild meetings were feasts at which they eat meat sacrificed to idols, which Christians can't do. And they engaged in ritual prostitution, which Christians also can't do. But then separately from that, there's this whole other pressure to engage in emperor worship. In this city, Philadelphia loved the emperor. They owed their existence to the Roman emperors, actually, because the emperors had paid to rebuild their city after an earthquake leveled it 70 years before this was written. So Philadelphia was not an easy place to avoid the mandatory emperor worship. Yet, despite what was surely immense pressure to pray to or sacrifice to the emperor, despite what was had to have been immense pressure to attend the guild feasts, the Christians in Philadelphia haven't given in. And for that reason, Christ has placed before them an open door that no one can close. I say for that reason because that word because right there. <coughs> because of that, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. So what's the open door that no one can close? I've heard this preached as maybe you have as though the open door is an opportunity for ministry. The way we might say, hey, the Lord opened a door for me to have a faith conversation with the person sitting next to me on the train. And it's possible that that's what's meant here by this open door. After all, the Apostle Paul often uses the image of an open door to talk about ministry opportunities. However, I'm convinced that in this context, the open door here actually means something a little different. You hang with me. I think I'll be able to make that case better in verse 12 if you just file that away. But before we move on, let's just stop and do a little you are here for a moment, as we've been wanting to do in every sermon in this series. In what we've seen in this commendation of the church of Philadelphia, this small yet spiritually mighty church who absorbs blow after blow yet remains faithful, what's in this for us here at North Sub? I don't know. When I read these words, you have but little power. I can't help but think of some of you who have been put through circumstances so overwhelming that even waking up this morning, it may have felt like you're going to be swallowed up. It almost feels like, and I apologize, this is just how I think because I'm a former football player. It, it, it maybe it almost feels like the Bears called you up, handed you a helmet, threw you out there on the field on defense on a Sunday afternoon, and told you your assignment is to play man-to-man -man defense against Devontae Adams, best receiver in the world. And then after he inevitably catches touchdowns on the first three offensive plays of the game against you, and 70,000 fans are booing you, throwing their drinks down at you from the stands, and your teammates are all yelling at you on the sideline, you literally don't know what else you can do. All you want to do is just crawl into a hole and disappear. 
He didn't ask for any of this. But unlike a Sunday afternoon Bears game, there's no substitutes allowed. You're in it. You're the one who's got to face it. Somehow you have to find a way to get through 57 more minutes of this. That's what the Christian life can often feel like in this broken world. In which God so often chooses to show himself strong through the weakness of his people. So what happens if if on that sideline Jesus comes up to us in our shame, puts his hands on our shoulders and says, Hey, I see what you're going through. You have but little power, but you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Amazingly, though, Jesus promises in this text to do even more than just give us a pep talk. We have in verses 9 through 12, three promises, three things Jesus promises to do here. First, he promises to vindicate us, vindicate us. I'll make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved them. Well, I imagine it's nice for a politician to hear his opponent say, ah, it's time to admit that you were right. Jesus' vindication of his oppressed people is far greater than that. Think about it. Those who happen to be giving Mr. Romney credit this week will move on next week to mock him for something else. But when Jesus vindicates the Christians in Philadelphia, he won't just make it so that their enemies will say, eh, those Christians are right. He says he'll so thoroughly vindicate them that those who have oppressed them will literally bow down at their feet. Now, surprise, surprise, this bowing down at feet is another Isaiah reference. Take a look at how Isaiah adds a whole extra layer to this ironic reversal going on here. This is Isaiah 49. There's actually a couple other examples in Isaiah that use very similar language. It says, kings will be your guardians and their queens your nursing mothers. These are Gentile kings and queens, kings and queens of the other nations around Israel. They will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who put their hope in me will not be, not be put to shame. In the context here in Isaiah, it's Gentiles who are not God's people, who are predicted to come and bow down at the feet of Jews who are God's people acknowledging that they were right about the one true God. Now in Revelation, John takes that Isaiah passage and says it'll be fulfilled in reverse with the Jewish people in Philadelphia who claim to be God's people but actually aren't coming to bow down at the feet of Christians, including Gentile Christians who weren't originally God's people but now are counted among God's people because of their faith in Christ. Look at this Isaiah text also. If you look at the context around it, shed some light on the nature of this bowing at feet, we don't have time to get all into it, but let me just summarize. The context here rules this out, actually, as some sort of prediction that God will take crowbars to the knees of our opponents and force them to say and say to them, now bow before my people and tell them they were right all along. It's not that, actually, in Isaiah. In context, Isaiah is clear. 
something very different. These people are actually repentant. So now that they've come to their senses, these other nations who didn't know the Lord before, they're willingly coming before God's people. And they're saying, hey, we now know the God that you were telling us about, and we're incredibly sorry for how we mistreated you in the past. That's what's going on in Isaiah, is picked up in Revelation 3. And friend, that day is coming for us too. Some of us actually get to experience a taste of it in this life. And I'll never forget the day, I've shared this once before, that, that I heard the voice of the number one mocker of Christianity in my high school calling my name across the Georgia Dome at a Christian conference 10 years after our high school graduation because I was at the conference with kids I was discipling and he was at the conference with kids he was discipling. And he recognized me from afar and shouted my name because he wanted to tell me about how he had come to Jesus and started serving at his church. Christ will vindicate us. That's not all Jesus promises here. Jesus also promises to keep the Philadelphian Christians from the hour of testing. He says, because you've kept my command to endure, I'll also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So wait, Christ is going to spare certain Christians from an upcoming trial because they've been so faithful? So is it like the more faithful we are, the less we'll suffer? And the more suffering I go through next year, does that must mean that I wasn't maybe the most faithful this year? Grammatically speaking, that could be what this means when it says, I, I'll keep you from the hour of testing. But that would cut against the grain of so much other scripture and church history in which the most faithful people, including Jesus himself, are often subjected to the most suffering. That's why I think a better reading of verse 10, recognizes that the phrase keep from, I will keep you from the hour of testing, can sometimes mean keep through. The way you keep your cell phone from the rain, not necessarily by leaving it home altogether on a rainy day, but by covering it while you run through the parking lot, right, and then wiping off any water droplets you see when you get in the car. The phone did go through the rain, in a sense, but you kept it through the rain. You preserved it. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Philadelphia, big trial coming. Heavy persecution coming your way. You're going to go through it like everyone else is. You're going to suffer like crazy, but I am going to personally ensure that you make it through without losing your faith. I think that's what Jesus is saying. We Western Christians, though, we, we spend a lot of time praying that God will keep us safe from things. As though going through hardship is the worst thing that could happen to us. But actually, there's something worse that could happen to us. And what we should actually pray most fervently is not that Christ would keep us from having the experience trial, but that Christ would keep us from being defeated in trial. Or that he'll keep us from disowning him, to put it differently, when we're under pressure. He promises to do just that for the Philadelphians here. Finally, Jesus promises to make the Philadelphian Christian who conquers into a pillar in God's temple with three awesome inscriptions etched into the stone. You see that? The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Here's what I think that promise would have communicated to a group of Christians with little power, 
who have been excluded from Jewish community life and who are feeling like they're about to get completely swept away by those who hold all the power. I think Jesus is saying to them, by the time I'm done with you, you wouldn't be a more permanent fixture of God's house if you were part of the architecture itself. You'll be pillars. What's less movable than that? What's more secure? What more secure and permanent position is there in the temple than to be a pillar? And once the name of my God himself is written on you, and the name of his city is written on you, and once my new name is written on you, Jesus says, do you think anyone is going to be able to come and question your right to stand where you're standing? Much less to remove you from your place? That's the message. And that's why I mentioned earlier that I don't think the open door in this passage is, hey, here's a ministry opportunity for you. Though certainly God does that sometimes. No, I, I think in this context, the door refers first and, first and foremost to the temple door, to the household of God, to the door to the place where he dwells with his people forever. That's where the Christians who conquer will be made pillars. That's the place where David's keys fit the doors. And while ministry opportunities come and go, the temple is the place that will be opened to these Christians in such a way that no one will be able to shut it in their face again. I don't know who's here this morning is feeling insecure about their future in Jesus. I don't know. Maybe you hear criticisms of Christianity sometimes, and you're like, am I, am I on the right side of history with this Jesus stuff? This is a word for you. The other night at a Young Life Bible study, some high school guys and I had just looked at scriptures about heaven and hell, and they were tracking with it. So I asked them, hey, well, given the reality of hell, why wouldn't we tell all our friends about this? One of them answered, well, to try to tell somebody at our school that they need to believe what you believe if they want to avoid hell would instantly make you the worst person in the school in everybody's eyes. And all the other guys voiced their agreement. That pressure is real. I, I've felt it myself. It's not imaginary. However, besides the question of how we're going to feel when our friends find out that we knew how they could avoid hell, but we're too self-conscious to tell them, set that aside. This promise about the temple makes me think, what if we really believed this? What if we really believed that the day is coming when everyone who mocked and rejected us here will see us standing there as engraved pillars in God's temple. Couldn't the security that we gain from visualizing our certain future as pillars in God's temple free us to be willing to endure some temporary mockery for a short time now? Which brings us to the final part, what, what the reader must do. Briefly, the only thing that's explicitly worded as a command in this text is... In verse 11, coming soon, hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. What do they have in Philadelphia that they're supposed to hold on to? Or to ask it differently, this crown that they have, which is a victor's crown, what could they let go of that would cause them to lose what they have, lose this crown? I think there are a few possible answers to that question. One is the gospel. They have the good news that Jesus died for their sins to reconcile them to God. And he was raised from the dead to give them new life forever. They have to hold on to that. 
as their source of hope. Another possibility of what they have that they have to hold on to is the lordship of Christ. That despite Caesar claiming to be Lord, there's only one Lord who deserves human allegiance and worship. They have to hold on to that, to the lordship of Christ. They've got the gospel. They've got the lordship of Christ, and they're told, hold on to what you have. But remember what we saw last week. In order to even just hold on to what we already have, we paradoxically have to be willing to be changed. Right? Remember, if you, if you, want a white, if you have a white fence now, and you want a white fence in five years, it's not enough to leave the fence alone. It won't be white anymore. You're going to have to paint the fence. It's the same for North Suburban Church and for each of us. There's a vandal coming after the fence. We have an enemy, according to Scripture, who's ready to try everything in his power to take away our crown. If we want to keep that crown, cruise control won't cut it. If we want to hold on to what we have, autopilot won't be enough. We'll have to be proactive. We'll have to be on the offensive. We'll have to be willing to repent and to change. Those of you who have been at North Sub know that we have changed in the last few years, and, and we'll continue to change. Not to depart from the gospel. Not to depart from the lordship of Christ. Not one inch from those things. But we have to continuously repent of ways in which we all unwittingly get off track from that gospel and from the lordship of Christ before those small departures become big problems. And by doing so, we hold on to what we have. Just to name two concrete examples of ways our church has been changing in hopes of setting ourselves up better to hold on to what we have. One is conforming ourselves to a more biblically robust vision of church life. Like, we've shifted more in recent years to what we believe are more healthy shared leadership structures. The shepherding of the church being shared truly among a team. We've pushed membership, much to some of your chagrin. We've pushed engagement at congregational meetings. And I know some of you feel how I used to feel. Like, who cares about all this boring stuff like church governance and polity? I don't see any head nods. That's good. Maybe you don't feel that way anymore. And the thing is, nobody cares until something goes wrong, right? And then suddenly everybody cares. And we say, well, why wasn't there more oversight, right? Why do we give that one person so much unchecked power? Listen, far better men and pastors than me have fallen, even in recent years, right? At North Sub, we are enacting accountability measure after accountability measure. I, don't, I can't talk about all of them right now, but we're doing that so that when I or other leaders in this church get off track, we can catch it early we can be encouraged toward repentance, and the whole operation doesn't need to get derailed. That's why we're doing what we're doing and asking for the commitment and engagement that we're asking from the congregation. A second way our church is changing in hopes of setting ourselves up better to hold on to what we already have is in reaching our neighbors with the gospel. Churches that don't share what they have don't end up keeping what they have. It's like a pond with no outlet. It stagnates and festers with algae. God designed church in such a way that it's only vibrant when we, what we're receiving, we then pass on to others. Yet, as we look back on 60 years of church life at North Sub since its founding, we realize that we've become guilty of the sin of nearly every 60-year-old church, honestly. 
We've settled into comfortable lives with church friends. We've lost the zeal of the founders of this church who are knocking on doors and desperate to reach people with the gospel. If we're not aware of the reality that such communities inevitably start becoming like the world without realizing it, we too will stagnate, become corrupted. So for the sake of our neighbors, yes, but honestly, for our own sake as well, we have said in recent days, hey, there's no point in us just creating another social hour for Christians on the corner of Lake Cook and Waukegan every Sunday morning. We need to either reach our community or get out of the way so that a new church can plant here and reach our community. It's, it's really that straightforward. And this summer, we're going to challenge each other to initiate with our friends, our unbelieving friends, like we have never initiated before, all in hopes of painting the fence white again, to hold on to the zeal for the gospel that the founding members of this church once had. Our big idea today is this. Because we will be vindicated, let's hold on to what we have. Because we will be vindicated, let's hold on to what we have. Sure, when, when a politician's words are met with outrage or backlash, they often attempt to walk those words back. May we never walk back our claim to Christ. Let's hold on to what we have, knowing that what seems backwards now will be shown to be on the right side of history in the end. I want to conclude by briefly addressing three groups of people who might be here this morning in light of what we've seen in God's word today. First, if you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, today could be the day that you trust in him and gain the security that, that comes with knowing with 100% certainty that your future is secure in God's heavenly kingdom like a pillar in his temple. If you want to do that, one of us would love, love, love nothing more than to pray with you before you leave today. Second group, if you have given your life to Jesus, but are convicted this morning that unlike the church at Philadelphia, you haven't held fast to his word, that you've effectively denied his name, there's actually good news for you too this morning. Namely, the same blood of Jesus that once saved you can now restore you. Thank God for the grace of the scripture that convicted you today and repent. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ once again and be restored to the assurance that you have a future ahead of you as a pillar in God's temple. Third group, if you have given your life to Jesus and have kept his word, not perfectly, but like the church of Philadelphia did, you've kept his word despite suffering. Hold on to what you have. Even when holding on to what you have requires uncomfortable change. Let's hold on to what we have so that our enemies can't take our claim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are in your hands and that no enemy can snatch that crown away from us while we are under your protection. We thank you for the promises of this text to do just that, to preserve and protect your true people. To watch over those who belong to you in such a way that you'll guard us and keep us for that last day where we get to hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. We get to see that book open and you point to our name that's been written there since from before the foundation of the world. Strengthen us, Lord, as we feel weak and small as we realize that we are more or less powerless here on this earth 
fill us with the power of your spirit and show yourself strong through our weakness. In Jesus' name.